Hey listeners, before we get started, I want to point you in the direction for a great resource for any midwife, birth worker, anyone looking to branch out and be an entrepreneur. Check out midwiferybusinessconsultation.com. She has several resources on there as well as some courses. If you sign up for a course, use the discount code journey20discount for 20% off. Go check out midwiferybusinessconsultation.com. Welcome to the Journey to Midwifery podcast. I'm your host, Amber Wilson, a doctor, nurse, midwife turned podcast host. It is our job and passion as midwives to listen to everyone else's story, their journey, their birth story. Now it's our turn to share. So here I am asking these midwives, what's your story? Join me each episode to hear the journey, the passion, and the mission of midwives today. Okay, here we are on another great episode of Journey to Midwifery podcast, and I am super, super excited to finally catch up with Miss Lily Nichols, a registered dietitian. And if you have not read her books, um, you have to. So say hi, Lily. Tell us who you are. Hi there. And um, the names of your two books that are the best ever. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for that intro. Mm -hmm. Uh, So my two books are Real Food for Pregnancy and Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. And everyone will probably ask, which book do I get? And it's like, Mm -hmm. get Real Food for Pregnancy unless you have just been diagnosed with gestational diabetes and you're freaking out. Then get Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. (laughs) That pretty much sums it up. Yeah. And I cannot tell you how many people I recommend, non-pregnant, people trying to get trying to get pregnant, just reading Real Food for Pregnancy, because I'm like, yeah, you can make modifications, but really it's a lifestyle information, so many things. Yeah. So I, because I read it, obviously I'm a provider, but I didn't, I read it after babies and have implemented a lot of the things that you talked about. So nice. yeah, I love it. I like it. to say real food is real food. There's you know, it's the same. It's like, what do I feed my kids? What do I feed my husband? What do I feed when I'm trying to conceive? What do I feed, you know, what do I eat for postpartum recovery? Yeah. What do I tell my parents to eat? It's like, it's, it's just real food is like the same across the board. It's just yeah. the research in real food for pregnancy is of course specific to pregnancy, but you can mm-hmm. find basically the same research supporting the importance of all the nutrients in real food for every life stage. So yeah, it's good for everyone. Mm-hmm. I love it. Um, so I want to start first because, as you know, this podcast is focused towards um, OB providers, midwives, midwifery students. And so we kind of want to direct on what, how we can get the best information out of you. But the one thing I really want to ask is you are a registered dietitian, but there's some confusion a lot with social media and just out there on the difference between a registered dietitian and a nutritionist. Um, can you can you tell us what the difference is in that? Sure. So a registered dietitian is a specific um, like national accreditation certification, I guess you could say. Um, we're accredited healthcare providers who have um, met certain specific criteria of education. So you have at least, you know, a four-year 
bachelor degree in nutrition plus a one-year supervised dietetic internship, which tends to be um, clinically focused. And then you have to pass a national registration exam and maintain your credential through um, continuing education. So it sort of just like ensures that the person has like a baseline science-based education, whereas a nutritionist is not a regulated term. So technically you could call yourself a nutritionist because you've you've read a lot about nutrition. You know about I mean I read your you book. can be a nutritionist. <laughs> and anybody can call themselves a nutritionist. There are various certifications of various quality out there. Um, there are some really good ones too. So like a um, I'm trying to think like I think it's CNC is like a good one, you know, but generally it's not a nationally recognized credentialing agency that credentials nutritionists. So there's a lot of people that call themselves nutritionists who might be certified, but it was like a weekend course, you know, Mm -hmm. and so you never know how much their, you know, experience, how much experience they have, how much of a science background they have. It's not to say that all nutritionists are therefore bad. It's just with a registered dietitian, there's a bit of a guarantee of a scientific background. Um, But I'll also say to play devil's advocate, you know, the registered dietitian programs very much push like the the government dietary guidelines. So you also might end up in a situation like I call myself a real food dietitian and many of Mm -hmm. us who sort of look beyond the guidelines um, use that terminology, even though it's not official, because there are a fair number of dietitians who believe that, you know, the guidelines are infallible and aren't willing to look outside of that. So you can also end up working with a dietitian who's like very heavily pushing like low fat, lots of grains, artificial sweeteners are fine, kind of information base as well. And so it's you know, there's no perfect credential, but a registered dietitian at the very least. Um, for those of us who have looked outside the box, at least we understand, you know, biochemistry and physiology and have at least five years of, of education behind us. Yeah, that is really helpful. Um, and like I said, your book was super enlightening. And I think that is something people have to also kind of dig into and do some research themselves. Mm-hmm. to decipher what is best. I'm on your side. That's why I read your book. <laughs> so, <laughs> my daughter was going through some of the stuff she was being taught. She's in middle school. And I was like, I know you have to answer that for your test, but that's actually not correct. <laughs> yes. Some yeah. nutrition things. So it's still being taught, but oh um, yeah, I think that's helpful. Um, but definitely I can see there's not one direct answer. Um, so I want to get into asking you some questions on how, how to help us better guide our care. Um, do you have, or let's say we see uh, somebody coming in, a pregnant person, usually we see them the first time about 10 or 12 weeks. We call them new OB visit. What do you wish that we are all were telling them at that new visit? I can tell you that in my practice, we talk about, you know, your, your body mass index, what you should kind of stay within range for weight gain and very basic, like, yes, you can eat fish. This is safe. You know, very rudimentary. It's like a 45 minute appointment. Right. Right. Um, well, I think what I would say is, 
when I'm when I'm in like a one-on-one or even a like group class setting with um, clients, I like to I like to start with questions. I like to ask them what questions they have about nutrition or if they have questions, especially when you get to weight, ask if they have questions about weight gain, which kind of opens up the conversation um, versus it coming across as like, I am the authority and this is what I'm instructing you on. So I, first of all, like to take that approach. Um, But I do think a lot of people come in with fears about what foods are safe or unsafe like everybody comes in with this mindset of like oh my gosh I'm pregnant I have to avoid all this stuff Mm -hmm. and they're not thinking about what foods they might want to emphasize to ensure that they're getting good nutrition it's more from like this fear-based perspective so I think it is would in an ideal world it would be helpful to a like give some background as to why they might be hearing why certain foods are supposedly safe or unsafe and have a conversation on the risk benefit trade-off of say like not eating eggs with runny yolks maybe that's Mm -hmm. the only way they like to consume eggs and understanding that the guidelines aren't taking into consideration that it's very 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 unlikely you're going to come across an egg that contains salmonella but on the flip side eggs provide a lot of really important nutrients that you might be missing out on otherwise if you don't consume them so it's up to you if you know how you want to cook your eggs if you want to do them super well done or not but they're a really important source of nutrition if you like them eat them you know sort of taking it from Mm -hmm. that perspective where it's a little more of a Uh, a nuanced like there aren't hard and fast (laughs) rules on like something is always unsafe something is always safe it's like these provide important nutrients these are the ways you could prepare them that would reduce your food safety risks but for some foods the food safety risks have been way overblown in conventional recommendations Um, I think that conversation is helpful puts people at ease I would also say that you know at the 10 to 12 week Mark, a lot of people are in the throes of nausea and food aversions. And so to have a bit of a conversation to sort of assuage their fears on like it's it's normal to not be able to eat super well right now, but like do the best you can. If you're having if the person is having those symptoms to have a conversation about some things that might be helpful or ask them what they've found helpful and to reassure them that this usually lessens or at least yeah, it usually at least lessens over time as they get towards and into the, the second trimester would be helpful. Um, I think those would be like the top things that I'd go over at the very beginning. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. And I it's so ingrained in our culture. Like, I can't eat cheese and I can't eat fish and I, I can't eat, you know, ABC. Yeah. And and the going over is, those things there. The fish one is funny because... Even the FDA recommends 12 ounces of fish per week for pregnant Mm -hmm. women. And they make it very clear that many different types of fish are safe. And there's only a select few fish that you want to avoid or minimize your consumption of. So even going by the guidelines, we should be encouraging fish consumption. Um, But a lot of that has been sort of lost in the sea of tons of information. And a lot of even OB providers are not aware of, say, the research showing that, uh, you know, women who consume at least 12 ounces of fish per week, their children have the best neurodevelopmental outcomes, whereas those who consume no seafood whatsoever 
have the worst neurodevelopmental outcomes because it isn't just a conversation about mercury or no mercury. It's a conversation about, well, A, like less mercury, but B, what are the micronutrients you would miss out on if you don't consume fish? And a lot of the ones in fish and seafood are really vital to brain development. So you're looking at iodine and selenium, vitamin B12, DHA, choline. Um, so these are some things that, yes, become important to have a bit more of a nuanced conversation. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it is just like talking people off the ledge of all the scary, scary stuff they, they read on the internet. So side question, what if they are just I know I had major food aversions in my pregnancy and they cannot eat fish in pregnancy. Is taking a DHA supplement equal? I would say, well, first of all, food aversions at that stage, like maybe the 10 to 12 week mark might not be the best time to be talking about seafood specifically <laughs> because yeah. people are pretty averse. I know I was pretty averse to seafood at that stage in both of my pregnancies. Um, so maybe save that for a later visit. Mm -hmm. But yes, to the point on if somebody is not eating any seafood whatsoever, it's going to be hard to meet your DHA needs from food alone without seafood. I mean, you'll get some in eggs, either from chickens that are raised on pasture or those that have been provided omega-3s in their diet. So they usually label those as omega-3 eggs. You'll get some in grass-fed beef, but the concentrations are like nowhere close to what you get in seafood. So I would say, yes, it would be wise to um, have a DHA or a fish oil supplement. Um, an algae-based DHA would be another option, but to have a supplemental source would be helpful. Um, but I would also point out that it's not just the DHA that you would potentially be missing out on. And a major nutrient to also consider would be iodine. Seafood is really the major source of iodine in the diet. Um, next to that and like way down on the list would be eggs and dairy products. So if a person isn't consuming any of those three sources of foods, um, definitely you would want to ensure that their prenatal has some iodine in it. And at least half of prenatals on the market don't contain iodine at all. So um, you'd want to you'd want to double check on that as a provider and make them aware that it's more than just DHA that they could be missing out on if they don't eat any fish or seafood. Oh, that is really helpful. And if people have not read your book, I hope they're taking notes because I want to. <laughs> <laughs> um, even though I've read it, it's just little, you know, as we There's, go along, you forget. Hey, I, when I sometimes I forget information, and I'll go back to my book and be like, oh, that's a really interesting study. Let me look <laughs> that up. Like, I, I can't keep track of 900 no. plus research articles in my brain, which is why I had to write it down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we're thankful for that. Um, so I did want to, we talked a little bit about, um, I mentioned, you know, we have to say, oh, this is your body mass index, and this is your weight gain. And then as we go along, you know, we're supposed to counsel on how's your weight gain going? Um, is it quote unquote excessive? Um, it can be a really tricky topic, as I'm sure you can imagine, to address. And you've probably gone through this yourself, counseling people. Yes. Um, what do you suggest how to address that best for people? Yeah, so I actually, just to point out a resource for people to check out, um, I, I had a series of posts on my Instagram. Um, it was sometime summer of 2019, I believe, if you want to like okay. go back through the posts where I talk about some um, newer research on prenatal weight gain and also have some posts around communication about weight gain. 
And what I will say as somebody who's worked with a lot of people who um, are struggling with, with this issue, and especially with having worked so much with gestational diabetes, which not always, but is often um, associated with starting pregnancy at a higher weight or gaining more weight than the guidelines say. Um, I have, I've had to deal with this conversation a lot. And what I've mm-hmm. found most helpful is to um, start the conversation with a question, sort of like I mentioned for that first prenatal visit. Um, do you want to discuss, um, sometimes I put it as like, some people like to discuss Um, weight gain during pregnancy so they know sort of like a ballpark of where to aim for some people don't find that helpful how are you feeling about the weight gain conversation like I try to leave it very open-ended so people don't feel like forced into talking about it because ultimately it's not really the number on the scale that matters so much it's more of does that number on the scale reflect something else diet and lifestyle wise that could be addressed right Sometimes your body is just going to do what it's going to do in pregnancy, and some people tend to gain on the higher side, and some people tend to gain on the lower side, and it has nothing to do with their choices. Other times, and I think it's important to point that out, by the way, so people don't feel super, like, put on the spot, right? Um, But then there's other times where when you see certain patterns of weight gain, it is the result of certain choices. And I've found, for example, when I'm seeing like a big, big spike in, in weight gain unexpectedly, like maybe there's something really stressful going on in the person's life. And there's a lot of stress eating of, you know, not the best comfort foods, not the most nutritious comfort foods happening. Um, Maybe the person does not realize that say they're added sugar intake or even naturally occurring sugar intake is like really high. Maybe there's somebody who's doing like multiple fruit smoothies during the day because they heard they need more vitamin C. So they're just doing like lots and lots of fruit and have no idea that they're consuming a huge amount of added sugar. Maybe they're on like the date train and doing their Mm -hmm. six dates a day or whatever and -hmm. getting a ton of sugar and carbohydrates that way. Maybe, you know, there can be many, many ideas, but to open up the conversation um, to at least let them know that, you know, see if they want to have the conversation, first of all, um, and then to sort of slowly move into like what that might mean for the person and the choices they're making. Uh, I, I just like to leave it as open ended as possible and um, and try to just keep the conversation um, light. And if the person doesn't want to go into talking about weight gain, I also think that that's okay. I know our guidelines like say we have to do that, but ultimately if we're forcing a conversation on a person that is then adding to their stress and their body image concerns and whatever, like you never know if the person has had, uh, you know, body image issues in the past or an eating disorder or something. There's lots of emotional stuff that gets triggered in pregnancy when your body is changing so rapidly. And I can almost guarantee you the person is aware of what's happening with their weight gain and you don't need to point it out. Right. It's like, that's Mm -hmm. why it's helpful to sort of like gently introduce the idea of the conversation and see if they want to talk about it or not. Um, Just gauge the emotional charge around the, the topic before like diving into it. Um, which is easier said than done if we don't have a lot of time, but 
for especially the midwives who are listening, they usually um, allow a little more time for appointments for some nuance in these conversations. I love that approach. And yeah, I, I just can't even say enough. That was so well said. Thank you. That's perfect. Because it's definitely often just like, well, you've gained 50 pounds and this is what can happen. And right. And adding more fear, you know. Right, so right. Your babies, 11 pounds, 10 pounds, 11 pounds, whatever. So, and you know what? I, There's like, I don't know. It goes all over the map, right? There's all these, there, there is like, you know, some, some valid points to be made about what we see statistically in the research. But as we know, there are always exceptions to the rule. Not everybody falls into a certain statistical category, right? And right. there's even been questions raised on whether the weight gain categories, um, weight gain guidelines should be updated. And in one of those um, research briefs on my Instagram, and there's there's a good section on weight gain in chapter seven of Real Food for Pregnancy as well. Um, but there have been some studies questioning whether the recommended weight gain ranges are good and just to, or, or justified, I should say. Um, and to give you like the Cliff Notes version, some research has found that people in the BMI categories 30 or greater, which they call obese, but I know the word obese is also like, that's a, that's a charged word. So I like to yeah. just talk about the category numerical value. So in the greater than 30 um, BMI category, and especially the greater than 40 BMI category, they've found that weight gain less than the current guidelines and even possibly weight loss in certain situations can actually be better. Those are associated with the best outcomes for mom and baby. Whereas people who are in a low BMI category, so less than 18.5, they've actually found that weight gain like over 45 pounds, sometimes over 50 pounds is actually associated with the best outcomes. So, you know, I just think there's a whole big spectrum of weight gain that's actually healthy. And I think so much of it just varies person to person. And again, looking at the underlying underlying factors behind the weight gain, if somebody is gaining more than expected, but they're eating super well and, and listening to their intuitive, mindful eating cues and, and hunger satiety cues, then I really don't see a problem, right? It's not the number. It's like whether the number is reflective of some sort of dietary habit that, you know, might be associated with better or not so great outcomes. Yeah, something maybe you can help talk them through. Um, and I want to spin off of that and talk about mindful eating since you mentioned that. That was my next question. Can you, I'm sure that, I know that's a very long subject, but can you talk about it a little bit? How yeah. we could counsel um, just give us a little. Yeah. On that. So mindful eating or intuitive eating, they kind of mean the same thing just means listening to your body's cues surrounding food. So it might be listening to your hunger and satiety cues. It might be listening to, I am in the mood for a food of this flavor, or this texture, or I am hungry for a snack, but not, not quite hungry for a meal or, I am ravenous and I want a very large meal right now. It's just honoring the signals that your body is giving you um, before, during, and after eating. And that can, that can be interpreted in many different ways. But ultimately, I have found that if you're really in tune with these signals, your body will often lead you to choose um, you know, healthier foods, in the quantities that are right for your body 
more often than not, but also allowing you space to make some food choices for the purposes of comfort or you like this flavor or whatever, even if it isn't the most nutritious choice. Like I don't expect everybody to be eating, you know, salad with like salmon and asparagus on top for every single meal, right? Like there's room for chocolate and and other things. Um, But it's just learning to listen to your body ultimately. And they're, um, they're in what I believe it's chapter three of Real Food for Pregnancy. Maybe it's chapter two. I can't remember. Chapter two. There's a section on mindful eating that walks you through a hunger awareness exercise, which is um, really helpful, where ultimately, you know, we can sort of choose, choose foods based on not only the nutritional value, but also how much our body actually wants to consume that particular food and in what amount and et cetera. Do you have suggestions in relation to mindful eating for, let's say, I'm going to use the word excessive, but that's relative, um, like sweet sugar cravings and Mm -hmm. how to deal with that? Well, I think, I think there's, I think an important point for me is to also think about what's happening physiologically in the body. So a lot of times I like to ask people how they feel after eating a certain thing. Like, okay, you mentioned you're like really craving sugar right now. Um, like, how are you feeling when you get those cravings? How do you feel after you give in to those cravings? What about, you know, an hour in, two hours after? And sort of discuss what physiologically might be driving the ongoing cravings for sugar. So physiologically, the response to eating a lot of sugar would be elevated blood sugar, followed by elevated insulin, followed by a sharp drop in your blood sugar, which then triggers you to physiologically want to bring your blood sugar back up to normal. Your body sees it a bit as an alarming situation to have um, frequent spikes and drops in blood sugar. So it's, it's not so much a this person doesn't have willpower. It's more Mm -hmm. so this person is getting a physiological signal from their body to raise their blood sugar back up. And so physiologically, it's going to tell you eat more carbs, whether that's sugar or, you know, complex carbohydrate or whatever to bring your blood sugar back up. And the only way to prevent this cycle from continuing on and on and on again is to make sure the person is also consuming things that don't spike their blood sugar as much. So we blunt that spike in blood sugar, which also blunts the fall in blood sugar. So you do that with more protein, more fat, and or more fiber. All of that works in tandem to prevent this crazy spike. Or as I like to call it, no naked carbs. If you're eating carbs by themselves, you're going to get a huge spike in your blood sugar followed by a huge drop, and you're not going to feel good. Your energy Mm -hmm. levels aren't going to be good. You're probably going to get kind of irritable, hangry, that like hunger, anger combination, which seems even more frequent in pregnancy. (laughs) People might chalk it up to hormones, but it can have a a blood sugar basis. Um, And so to come up with maybe some things that will satisfy the sweet tooth, but not give them that crazy blood sugar roller coaster will ultimately help them sort of break that cycle. Um, so I would say, uh, if they're craving something sweet, maybe you can help steer them in the direction of a dark chocolate over a milk chocolate, which will have 
less sugar overall, maybe pairing that chocolate with some nuts. So now you're providing the fat and protein combination to again, blunt that spike in their blood sugar. Is it just to go back to the dates thing? Cause everybody gets all dates crazy in pregnancy. So if you're mm-hmm. going to do the dates thing, and again, I would only recommend that if you're somebody who does not have gestational diabetes, if you do, don't do it. Um, but the dates, are you going to combine that with something that's going to blunt that spike in your blood sugar? So combine it with some nuts, combine it with some cheese, combine it, hey, with some bacon even. I don't know. Um, have it alongside a meal that was high protein. Um, don't just have the dates by yourself, by itself, because you're going to have, again, those naked carbs are going to give you a huge spike and a huge drop in your blood sugar, and you are going to be craving more carbs to bring your blood sugar um, back up again. What about a date shake, like uh, maybe plain yogurt or milk and ice or something? I think if you did it with a good amount of protein in it, you'd be okay. Um, So I would do like plain whole milk Greek yogurt. That way you've, you've screened out a lot of the lactose and most of the carbs Um, and maybe choose like almond milk or coconut milk versus regular milk again, because the regular milk is going to have more carbs in it. And you're getting like a really huge sugar punch with the, with the dates. Um, I would just make sure that's the only sweet thing that's going in the shake. Maybe even throw some extra almond butter in there, some collagen protein, like really up the protein and fat so you can blunt that spike. Um, if, since I've worked with a lot of people, who are either with gestational diabetes monitoring their blood sugar or people who are just very curious about their blood sugar response. I've seen plenty of graphs showing the response to dates and it's, it's really not pretty. It's really the, the risk, the blood sugar response is crazy. Um, so it's really helpful to maybe spread out your date consumption throughout the day um, to combine them with some fat and protein or just to forego those altogether. So you definitely would say spread them out versus like a specific time of day to have them all or something like nighttime or I don't know. Yeah, I would spread them out. So if you want to have your dates um, as your snack or, or, you know, have them as your dessert after each meal, but not have like six all at once. No, 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 no bueno. Oh, that's a helpful tip. Thank you. Um, So I'm going to take a spin off and we're going to talk a little bit about postpartum. I know this is extremely broad and I don't expect us to get through all this. Um, And you're recently postpartum, so it's fresh on your brain. Yes. So my question is just going to be three staples. Like usually we're, we're seeing everybody weekly, 37, 38, 39, 40. What are some things we can say? These are your three or five, whatever staples for postpartum meal planning whatever either you make it or people bring it Mm -hmm. so postpartum I mean there's a lot of considerations because you you have a lot of healing to happen post-birth and also nutrient repletion and you want to support breastfeeding and you want it to be easy for mom to eat when she probably also has a baby on her (laughs) so one-handed meals can be helpful um I would say something like a And then also assuming that things could be pre-made or somebody could make make it for you. So I would say some sort of a breakfast quiche or egg bake frittata egg muffin sort of a thing would be a great meal. Um, Eggs are really 
filling, they're high protein, they're high in choline, you'll get DHA and B12 and a whole bunch of micronutrients in them. You can pack in vegetables and other delicious things into egg bakes. And if you want, they could be made ahead and frozen. So, um, and then quickly, you know, reheated in, in the morning. If you don't have a partner or support people there to make eggs fresh, I think doing something like a, a quiche frittata would be great. Um, another option would be, and this is something that I personally enjoyed both of my postpartums, I really craved meat and like high iron foods postpartum. And um, I have a recipe in real food for actually, I think it's in both of my books for um, grass fed beef meatloaf that has hidden liver in it. So like ground up liver or liver pate, which is super high in iron, B12, vitamin A, all these things that are really important for your healing, especially if you've had a tear or have had um, postpartum hemorrhage or had a surgical birth. Um, meatloaf also is really easy to eat with one hand and not drop on the baby. <laughs> so um, that's definitely one that I would throw in there. I usually like to roast my meatloaf on a sheet pan and then I roast like sweet potatoes or other vegetables um, alongside it. So that could be an easy one pan meal and I make a large batch, you know, two pounds plus of, of ground meat, not including the liver you're adding to it as well. And uh, so it can be many days worth of meals that could be easily reheated. And then third, I would say some sort of a soup or stew, curry, something that has a base of bone broth. So the bone broth is providing you with a lot of collagen and you need a lot of this collagen for your your healing of all of your tissues, whether you had a tear or not, like your pelvic floor is stretched like crazy. Your skin needs to regain elasticity. You want elasticity in your breasts because they're going to get engorged as your milk comes in within that first week. Um, so hopefully you can avoid some stretch marks on, on your breasts. I mean, hey, stretch marks happen. So, you know, no worries if they show up, but that extra collagen might, might uh, tip the balance in your favor there. And also these um, warming soups and stews are really soothing to your digestive system. You have to remember that all your organs are finding their place again as your uterus um, shrinks down. So things that are easy on digestion and really warming um, tend to help with recovery just from that aspect, which isn't necessarily like a nutrient aspect, but just for um, overall like ease on your digestive system. Uh, I just want to comment, too, about the tear, uh, healing of tears. I don't have a study to back this up. Maybe you do. But um, eating this way long before postpartum, I assume, and from what I've seen, way less likely to have vaginal lacerations. Do you agree? Do you know? I agree. And I will say I have not seen a study on this. And postpartum is like specifically studying postpartum women is like they're it's like the most understudied group of people ever for many many reasons I mean if you lose a lot of people to follow up a lot of people don't want to even fund the studies blah 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 um, but I for myself personally and then from what I hear from other midwives and from just readers who have you know, previously had a pregnancy where they weren't eating this way, or particularly if they were eating a vegetarian diet, which by default doesn't contain 
collagen because collagen is an animal protein. Um, I've heard many stories from people where they've had really poor healing and um, you know, a lot of issues with pelvic floor recovery and like healing of the perineum and prolapse and whatnot um, in one pregnancy and then eating this way in another pregnancy, miraculously, they don't have a tear and their pelvic floor heals really well. And um, so there is, it's, we have to wonder why, if you look at all these different traditional cultures globally, um, there's a lot of commonalities between them. And I talk about this in um, chapter 12 of Real Food for Pregnancy. And I also have a continuing education webinar in the Women's Health and Nutrition Academy on postpartum recovery and nutrient repletion going into this. Um, but you see bone broth and things that use recipes that use a lot of these collagenous parts of different animal foods, you know, eating nose to tail, um, like pig trotter soup in China, um, or the um, seaweed soup with a beef bone broth base in Korea, or doing like a whole chicken soup, um, chicken stew sort of thing in Mexico and South America, you see this across the globe. And there has to be some wisdom behind it. And yeah, we don't have a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial, but that doesn't mean that there isn't a ton of anecdotal and just physiological, like logically thinking through how would the nutrients in this food possibly be helpful um, to support that it it, it does indeed um, improve healing. So, hey, I mean, if it doesn't work, at the very least, you ate some delicious soup. If it does work and you heal faster, great, but you're not hurting anything to eat that way. Yeah, I think it does. And way more than just perineal massage the last few weeks. I'm always like, you just, this was way back. You got to eat yep. <laughs> well the yep. whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know we're getting close to the end of our time, but I just want to touch a little bit, especially right now, you know, we're still in, in our depths of pandemic. And I know, you know, that there's been some data out there about vitamin D and how um, they think it's possibly related to better outcomes. So yes. Your thoughts on vitamin D, what do you have as far as guidelines to how much you should take pregnant and how much postpartum? Yes. So vitamin D is um, one of my favorite vitamins. So (laughs) I write about it extensively. I have a whole continuing education webinar on vitamin D and pregnancy because there's so much cool research on this uh, nutrient. So vitamin D needs do go up during pregnancy and they're actually even higher during breastfeeding. And for many reasons, we show optimal outcomes in pregnancy and mom and baby and breastfeeding and everything when people have adequate levels of vitamin D. So we have actually pretty strong data, randomized placebo-controlled trials in pregnancy and breastfeeding, actually, that point to um, optimal dosing. So in pregnancy, a minimum of 4,000 IUs per day is recommended. They, uh, when they test lower intakes, like say 2,000 IUs compared to 4,000 IUs, you see a significantly higher rate of vitamin D deficiency in both mothers and newborn babies. Um, the best outcomes really are at 4,000 IUs, and we have some trials, although not randomized placebo-controlled, at 5,000 IUs showing excellent outcomes as well, and no cases, zero cases of vitamin D toxicity in any of these studies. I want to point them out that out because people get all freaked out about um, vitamin D toxicity. They actually um, think that the original 
RDA for vitamin D was set 10 times too low based on, um, you know, inaccurate mathematical modeling of our needs for vitamin D. So just so you know, the RDA is 600 IUs. So if they underestimated it by a factor of 10, it's likely that 6,000 might be needed, but we don't have randomized controlled trials on that dosage yet. For breastfeeding, they've found that 6,400 IUs is ideal. And why that weird number? It's because at the time the RDA was set at 400, and so they were doing different um, supplemental amounts, and they added 6,000 IUs on top of 400. So that's why you get the weird 6,400. But the trials we have at 6,400 IUs in breastfeeding show that that amount is adequate for maintaining mother's vitamin D status, and also that her milk contains enough vitamin D to support her infant's um, vitamin D levels and prevent deficiency in the infant without a separate vitamin D supplement for that breastfeeding baby. So those would be the levels, ideally 4,000 during pregnancy, 6,400 for breastfeeding. If a person is not getting regular midday, no sunscreen, sun exposure, living at a latitude where they can even make vitamin D from the sun at that time of year, it's a complicated nutrient, but those those would be helpful levels to look at. And then you can also, um, you know, check somebody's vitamin D status to ensure that their levels are um, adequate at that level of supplementation, because that level of supplementation might not be the right amount for every single person. All I can say is that the studies as a whole statistically support those levels um, at preventing deficiency for the majority of people. But that doesn't mean some people might not need higher doses to maintain their vitamin D status. So I'll also throw out that caveat for the providers listening. And I think that's helpful, but also like it's so important for, you know, and not everybody's this way, but many mothers, it's a big deal. You don't want anything in that baby's gut except for breast milk. And that little supplement is gross. Um, And it was an issue for me. And it was really important that I took enough that I didn't have to supplement my baby. So I think that's really helpful information for well, moms and for midwives. There are maybe good don't ones on the market, though. So like Carlson brand has a vitamin D supplement that's just in a base of um, fractionated coconut oil. So it's like a coconut oil that stays liquid. So there are ones that aren't those like those weird multivitamin infant liquid multivitamins that have like tons of nasty ingredients if you read those it's like yeah really disgusting um there are options for people who don't want to go that route if you want to um supplement baby directly you could look at a brand like carlson's where it's just in a base of coconut oil or seeking health also has one that's in a base i believe of olive oil so they there are ones on the market that are not full of nasty junk but those liquid infant multivitamins i agree are full of just atrocious ingredients and I would not I, I wouldn't use those personally I did not know that that's really helpful thank you um so I, to wrap up I just you mentioned some of your CEU courses throughout the um interview which I love and I want to take all of them can you re-mention those that we as midwives could really benefit from or at least a couple oh sure yeah so um the Women's Health Nutrition Academy is uh, the the name of of that platform where we offer continuing education courses. Um, I co-run it with a functional medicine, real food dietitian friend of mine. We both work in the women's health arena. And so I have 
gosh, I think five webinars up there. Um, they're about 90 minutes. They usually run to about two hours with the Q&A. Uh, so I have uh, vitamin D in pregnancy. I have real food for pregnancy. I have uh, gestational diabetes. I have uh, postpartum recovery and nutrient repletion. So that's focused on mom's healing specifically. And I, I also have one about nutrition for breastfeeding, which is specifically focused on baby, actually, because it's focused on nutrient transfer into breast milk. So how can we influence the nutrient levels in breast milk? Because some nutrients actually do vary. Actually, the majority of nutrients in breast milk um, vary based on a mother's intake, which is not what most of us have been taught. So that one goes through a bunch of different studies about um, how nutrients transfer through breast milk. And then ultimately, you're looking at supporting mom via all the things I talk about in the postpartum recovery and nutrient repletion webinar to also support baby and getting optimal micronutrient levels in, in the milk. So there's many more on the site as well um, from my colleague Ayla that I co-run it with. And then we also bring on some guest experts. Um, so we have some on like the menstrual cycle. We have one upcoming on menopause. Um, so we're, we're trying to touch all the different angles that we can support uh, women's health nutritionally. That's awesome. I didn't know you had all that on there. Do you offer um, like ACNM or, or nurse CEUs? We have decided not to. We used to offer CEUs for dietitians and ultimately we decided to, to drop that because there's so much regulatory nonsense that goes along with it. We have a whole whole thing on our website about why we're no longer offering CEUs. Um, but what I will say is that we, by and large, meet the requirements for many different providers, and a lot of them offer the option to um, submit for CEUs, even if it's not pre-approved th through a particular organization. The reason I say we meet the requirements is that all of our presentations are highly cited. You get a full reference list. You get the slides. Um, for the majority of the presentations, you get the slides. Some of our guest presenters choose not to do that, but like all but maybe one, <laughs> you get the slides. You always get a reference list. Um, and so those are things that you could provide to prove that it's like a high caliber um, educational opportunity. But no, the, the regulatory in terms of like being approved for all these different providers, we have asked, we've been asked for, you know, for midwives, for doulas, for acupuncturists, for physicians, for nurses, for, and I can tell you the, like, getting the, the amount of paperwork and things involved in getting these things approved is sadly not worth it for us. We have to focus more on the content. We have had times where it's taken more time to actually get approved for certain things than it has to actually make the content. So we are focused on making the really good content, you can take it or leave it for um, CEUs. But, you know, sometimes with the requirements that are out there, it just becomes such a paperwork headache that we're just not going there anymore. I don't blame you. And really, it's the content that matters. It's obviously, you know, educational and wonderful information. So, um, so tell us where to find you. You bet. So you can find me on my main website, which is lilynicholsrdn.com. Um, I also have separate websites for the books if you want to look those up. Uh, but 
On that website, I have my blog. There's over 250 articles up there for the taking. There's actually one relevant to our discussion today on postpartum recovery meals. If you just search in the search bar, postpartum recovery, you'll get a blog post that links out to 50 plus recipes and gives you all the rationale behind why we emphasize certain foods for recovery. There's a whole bunch of stuff on the blog. So just read there first if you want to check that out. If you're interested in the books, I talk about those on my website. I have a download of the first chapter of Real Food for Pregnancy if you want to read that for free um, before deciding to purchase. Um, that is a helpful place to understand why why are we recommending real food for pregnancy? Um, what are the benefits? How is it different than the advice that most of us have been taught? And then social media wise, I'm on most of the platforms, but I'm most active on um, Instagram and my handle is the same as my website. So it's Lily Nichols RDN. Um, and I did not know about the 50 recipes. So that is a helpful resource just for me to offer to yes. everybody. So yeah, it's awesome. a pretty it's a pretty detailed, fun post there. So definitely check that out. There's a bunch of um, my articles lately have been uh, fairly in depth, which is why I don't put out new articles very often anymore. Um, but I have some interesting ones on postpartum anemia, which I think is um, worth reading, sort of questioning the guidelines around that. I have some on starting solids for baby, which is written in a very non-dogmatic, non-judgmental way. I mean, you as a mother of six, you you know how it's different with each kid. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of articles on there to, to take a look at if you want to sit down with a cup of tea and have some nice reading. Well, Lily, um, you are a genius and I feel like a fangirl because I got to meet you and chat with you. And I just think that you have created something that is amazing it's a wonderful resource and i'm really thankful that you that you've blazed this trail like seriously i think this is awesome thank you that's super uh, kind yeah i definitely from the heart mean that that's really great um and thank you for taking the time out finally catching up with me yes i'm, I'm glad we can make this happen this. <laughs> yeah we're gonna have this is gonna be a big benefit for all of us ob out here to hear this so thank you you bet Well, I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you would like to interview or know someone who does or encourage someone who has a great story or viewpoint to share, have them reach out to me. Easy to find. I'm in one place now. Journey to midwiferypodcast at gmail.com. The email address is in the show notes and on the podcast page. But again, journey to midwiferypodcast at gmail.com. I can't wait to hear from you and share your story. Thank you.